Hey guys, it's Simon, and it is my pleasure to welcome you to episode 22 of Learning from Humanity with Simon Funk, the old and the bold. In this episode, I had the privilege of speaking with Ruthie Wicks, a woman who proves with her life that we are always freer than we think. Born two days before D-Day, she went on to become an avid scuba diver, explore much of Europe, including many archaeological sites and natural wonders, return to traditional school during her mid-twenties, ultimately becoming a successful lawyer, and sailed across the Atlantic Ocean. As if she were not already interesting enough, Ruthie then became Jewish. This episode is an overdose of fantastic stories paired with some time-tested wisdom drawn from both Ruthie's life and Judaism itself. Without further ado, Ruthie Wicks. So Ruthie, what do you think living well looks like? Say again? What do you think living well looks like? <clears throat> being happy with what you've got, being happy with who you are. Okay. And then are there any things that you can do, any specific things that you have done in your life that have made it easier to get to that place or that have helped you get to that place? Uh, I suppose growing up in post-war Britain where when consumerism wasn't essential, mm. um, when it was far more of a struggle than North Americans think it was. <laughs> hmm. um, but that um, it, <coughs> we, <coughs> sorry, uh, we, we learned how to make do with what we've got um, mm -hmm. and found ways to still enjoy ourselves and uh, be relatively happy because we weren't focused on what we didn't have. Hmm. Cool. What's the smallest, easiest thing that you've done that has made your life noticeably better? <laughs> I'm a recycling funny. freak. So any little bit of stray plastic I will put in a special <laughs> plastic bottle, which I then send out with my, my PMD recycling, that's Pacific Mobile Depot, where you mm -hmm. can take all your stuff that, the blue box program doesn't take like styrofoam and soft plastic and little <laughs> tiny bits of plastic. Okay. <laughs> now, whether or not it actually goes somewhere sensible and gets recycled, I don't know because the bottom's fallen out of the recycling market and it tends to end up. Hmm. But I do what I can. Okay. And doing it makes me feel better. So. <laughs> And it's pretty tiny. Well, it is important. It's important to do what we can to make sure that the world stays spinning the way that it does and the way that it should. Okay, let's uh, move on to a few stories about your life. Would you be able to give like a very, very brief timeline and then tell a few of the important stories to let people know who you are? Uh, so I was born two days before D-Day. Um, and went to school like most people, um, became a happy little Anglican um, because the church I went to was in the Royal Marine Barracks. So Sunday morning we had the massed bands of the Royal Marines in oh. church, which was pretty awesome. Because um, I, I 
grew up in, in Portsmouth, we were stuck between the Royal Marines at one end of the town and the Navy at the other end. So hmm. it was a very military kind of town. Um, hmm. When I started going out with boys, they were all sailors um, hmm. because I, I don't know, I didn't connect with, uh, with boys uh, my age particularly. Um, the first disaster was when I was eight, my family moved from Portsmouth to what was then a little tiny village about six miles away that actually had, didn't even have electric streetlights, it had gas streetlights. We lived in my grandmother's cottage, um, which didn't have electricity. We had gas downstairs. And this 300-year-old cottage, us kids would go to bed with, uh, with, with candles. So you can imagine the fire risk today there. Um, the worst thing about it was that we moved into this Catholic enclave. So this happy little Anglican and my sister that was three years younger than me, um, were obliged to become Catholic because my father was one of those animals called a lapsed Catholic. But because of all the pressure from these Catholics around us. So that meant that I had to go to this dreadful Catholic school, um, which retarded my education like ridiculously. Um, there were about 60 kids in this school. There were... There was one flush toilet that was only for the, um, for the staff. And there were two other... They did, they did flush, but they were, they'd been built over the, 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 the privy. So they were kind of just this, this wood with a hole in it. Um, and it was connected up with a... It, with, a, with a flash. There was corporal punishment. Um, there was every morning 45 minutes of catechism, um, which meant that you never had time to do the things that you were supposed to do in terms of, you know, preparing for an 11 plus exam. Mm -hmm. So because we were out in the country, there were two parts to that 11 plus exam. I was the only one from the entire school who passed the first part, which then meant that I had to go on my own to, a, to another school that was miles away that I'd never been, I didn't know anybody, at 11 years old, and take this all-day exam, hmm. which I couldn't even... I mean, the English was okay, and the comprehension was okay, but the, 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 the math, the arithmetic, I, I'd not been taught it, so I couldn't do it. Yeah. So I didn't pass it, and I was really, really sad and disappointed about that. Um, because it would have taken me out of the trap mm. I was in. Um, however, the universe has a way of smiling. Before you go on to the smiling, would you be able to explain what an 11 plus exam is? I oh. know, but I don't think okay. the listeners will okay. know. Um, it's an exam back in the day that kids took when they finished primary school and it decided which secondary school you could go to. If you went to a secondary mod, you were the lowest of the low. If you went to a, a tech, you were reasonable. If you went to a grammar school, you were creme de la creme. Okay. 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 And then you said the universe was smiling. So then, yeah, so the universe the smiling was smiling universe. because I did end up going to a secondary mod school. 
secondary modern, that's what they were called. Mm -hmm. um, but it was brand new. It had the most amazing staff, the most amazing facilities. And of course, I was in the top end of a, of a streamed system, right? Mm -hmm. So we had, we, had, we had a double and a single period of science every week. The double period was always practical. Three kids to one Bunsen burner. That's huh. how practical hands-on it was. Okay. So all the practical experiments, physics, physics and chemistry. And then in the single period, we would cover the theory. Hmm. Um, we put on a huge annual production that all the school was engaged in. There were about 800, 800 kids. Um, and then a smaller one, uh, that was in the summer, and then a smaller one uh, sort of around about, around, around about Christmas. Mm -hmm. um, we didn't have a music program, um, but everything else was, was, was fantastic. Um, so from there, they wanted me, the, the school wanted me to go um, to what would, it wasn't called sixth form college, but it was another school where you would do two extra years in order to, um, in order to get what were then called A-levels. So at yeah. 16, you took O-levels, ordinary level education. Mm -hmm. And then at 18, you took A-levels. Okay. Um, but by that time, I had realised that all I wanted to do was get away from home. So I left <laughs> school. Um, the first job I got was, in, um, um, was as a laboratory assistant in a dairy, oh, that's which was so interesting. But it didn't pay enough. Um, and after about 18 months, I got a job with the civil service which is like a government job here right mm -hmm. um <clears throat> and i worked in the mtp unit which stands for mechanized ticket processing and if you want to hear mm. about what that did i can tell you but it's probably not the kind of stuff you want to hear anyway <laughs> that was good because it had the benefits and it was a good salary and everything else but mm -hmm. They sent round a memo about my pension um, the, when I was 21. And I thought, <laughs> which freaked me out totally. Oh, in the, in the, oh, b before that, because there was, you know, we're talking, what are we talking? We're talking 54, we're talking 58, that kind of, you know. There wasn't a lot apart from secretary and teaching. There wasn't a lot of career opportunities for, for young girls, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I had met this, met this builder in a, in a bar because I started drinking at 14 in pubs and never, ever got asked to... Well, we didn't have IDs in, in yeah. the UK and I don't yeah. think we still don't. Um, so, like I said, I used to hang out with sailors and that meant going to pubs and I met this guy, Brian who I thought, well, you know, he's got talents, he's a good, he's a good workman, um, we could build something together. So he was a bit older than me, he was, what, eight years older than me, I suppose. Um, so we got married when I was 18. Hmm. Um, and this is before, so you weren't a major, you were still a minor until you were 21, hmm. back then. 
Um, so my mum had to sign off on the, you know, give her consent to this marriage. Well, mm -hmm. um, after 18 months, I realised that this was not going to go anywhere. So I, I left. Um, and at the same time as this memo about my pension came through, my divorce came through. Hmm. So I had been in, I had been a Francophile since the age of about 14 when this was the other thing that my school used to do. They used to take you on, on trips huh. during, during holiday time with the staff. When I was 14, we took our French class to, to France. We yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, an, that's another really good story. I mean, talk about freedom. Yeah. We were all about 14. We shared that the school where we were staying, we shared with a school, a boys' school from Liverpool. And okay. we couldn't understand a word they said. <laughs> um, but... I mean, we were allowed to go out in the evening to the local cafe mm -hmm. without being, you know, <laughs> we could just go out and hang out and, and yeah. whatever. And do life. And it was, you know, and nothing terrible happened. Um, so anyway, I'd been a Francophile since, since then. So at 21, I said, well, okay, you know, I'm just, I'm not working towards my pension and I've got my divorce. So I went off to France and I got an, au, an as an au pair, mm -hmm. which meant that I was um, working, uh, you know, I was, I, I was lucky because you can get some bad families, but this was a really good family. Mm -hmm. I went to, I went to Alliance Francaise in the morning um, and then came, came back to the house and looked after, I think probably a five, a two-year-old and a five-year-old, something like that, mm -hmm. for the afternoon, just basically took them to the park, gave mm -hmm. them some dinner, and then, you know, I was, I was free for the rest of the time. And mm -hmm. you were, you weren't paid a fortune, but at least you were, you know, you were, you had somewhere warm to live, and, and you were, and you were fed, you know, yeah. and what was, you know, what I was paid was enough to buy metro tickets and, mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. So during that time, um, is, is this how you want me to do this? Honestly, what about your questions? My questions can come after the story. Okay. If you want to tell the story okay. as like a list okay. of highlights and a list of lowlights. Okay. okay. Um, well, I suppose that that was, did, uh, did that for six months. And then the family that I was with wanted to go to Brittany and I wanted mm -hmm. to go to the Mediterranean. Because hmm. I'd never been, cool. and I was oh I was also a diver. I was a I was a qualified um, master. What did we call it then? We used to with the with the British Sub Aqua Club, and I was yeah. a second class diver, which was okay. back before you know <laughs> when it was still cutting edge and okay. we pretty much wrote the rules. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. Would you be able to tell like a quick story about diving? I'm really curious about this. Well, I'd always wanted to. I'd always been fascinated by what was under the water. I could swim underwater before I could swim on the surface. I just wanted mm. to get down there and see, even without mm. goggles or anything. Yeah. And if I'd got, if I'd got math, 
I would probably have gone a completely different way and I would have gone into government service as a, as a marine biologist or something like that. Hmm. Anyway, um, I did try and join the BSA, the British Tobacco Club, when I was 14 or 15. Um, and they said they'd love to have me, but at that point they didn't have a junior section because I'm so damned honest, right? I told them how old I was, which was yeah. stupid. Um, <laughs> So then, you know, other things, other things got, got in the way and, and, you know, sailors and drinking and things. Um, but it was, it was still there. So not long after I'd been married, my Brian, my, my husband, was a twin. And his twin, Peter, said he was going to go and join the, the, the Subaqua Club. I said, well, I'll come with you. So we, we, we trained together. Um, and that was how, I mean, at, from that point on, my life changed completely because people did fun things at weekends. They went out on boats and they went, to, they, they went diving and they didn't spend all their time just <laughs> drinking. Um, so that was really what, um, you know, I mean, it wasn't going to go anywhere anyway, the, the marriage, but so... Brian wasn't interested in, in coming and joining or going diving or anything. So mm -hmm. I just went my separate way. And after that, you know, that combination of <laughs> um, everything and, and just the people I met. I mean, I, it was, I'd never met people like it. I mean, they were, they were educated people. They ran their own businesses. A couple of them were were in the in the scientific civil service um and and, and they were exciting and and i learned mm. so much from them mm. um we used to um i mean one of the first trips i went on with with them was to to the channel islands it was the first time i'd ever been on an aeroplane <laughs> um and it was a tiny little propeller Dakota, I think it was, um, and we flew to Jersey, and we stayed in this hotel, and we 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 didn't take tanks, but we were we we wore our weight belts under our under our jumpers so that we could wouldn't have to check them as check bags or anything like that. So <laughs> there's these propellers, you know, think oh, and um, stayed in this hotel. Then we would dive all day for ormers, which are like small, small abalone. Okay. They're, they're endangered now, so you can't dive for them anymore. But mm -hmm. then we would, we would, you know, collect big sacks of these, take them back to the hotel. The hotel would would use them uh, for their for their for their guests and feed them to us. Mm -hmm. um, and so we got, you know, we got we got a cheap rate. No. So uh, that was that was the first one we went to Spain when Franco was still there, wow. um, and had wonderful dives there. We were followed everywhere by the by the Guardia, um, you know, in 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 the, in in the boats and that, so they could see what we were doing, or kind of. And then we used to have poor on competitions. And a pouron is one of those like goat skins that full of wine, right? And you lift yeah. it up like that and you open your mouth and you're... <laughs> yeah, see how much you can do. 
Um, so I won the women's, of course, and um, and then after that we went down to the beach where there was this nice little bar open, right? Mm-hmm. And I guess we started drinking because the next thing I remember, I'm sitting on a stool. I've got a guardia's hat on. I've got his gun, whatever it is, over my knees, and I'm talking to the Spanish guardia, right? And I kind of <laughs> came to, and I. Thought, where is everybody? And they'd all gone. They'd left me, right? <laughs> so I said, oh, I, I had to get back. I said, I must get back to the campsite. So I walked back to the tent and went to bed. And then next morning I said, oh, what did you, why did you leave me? Yeah. And they said, well, you were so pissed. You wouldn't come with us. You just kept saying, no, you were going to stay there. <laughs> <laughs> so um, there, there was, there was, I mean, it wasn't all just, just just drinking although there was a lot of that um and yeah it was just it was a period of really you know fantastic evolution for me um and then anyway so i the the divorce had come through i'd got this thing at this memo and i said goodbye to that and all my friends and i went off to france with the intention that it would be I don't know, just six months or a year or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but then after this first six months, the um, I wanted to get to the Mediterranean, so I mm-hmm. answered this ad, because by then I could actually read adverts and get down phone numbers, and my French was really good. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a family going down to Saint-Tropez, which back then, we're talking 67, 68, 67, mm-hmm. I think. No, six, yeah, 67. Um, Saint-Tropez, Brigitte Bardot, and it, I mean, it was the place to, to go. Hmm. Um, so I, I applied for it, and apparently, I learned afterwards, I got the job, and there were four, four zero applicants. Oh, wow. And I think what probably swung it was that the, um, the, 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 the woman, the mother, interviewed me, and she had her two sons there who were, even Xavier, who were, I don't know, 12 and 13 or 13 and 14, something like that. Mm-hmm. And at the end, I said, you know, um, Madame, si les enfants veulent faire de la planche, veulent apprendre de la planche, if the, if the children would like to learn diving. <laughs> um, je suis monitrice, I'm, I'm, I'm qualified, so I could teach them. And I could see their eyes going... <laughs> so whether or not that um, that was what got me the job, I got the job. Um, so uh, we go down. First of all, I was supposed to go down by train and meet them down there. And mm-hmm. then the eldest boy, Eve, had an accident at school um, and he got a paper pellet in his eye. That's a problem. So... He, the, the recommendation was, well, we're worried about detached retina, so he needs to stay kind of, you know, very quiet for at least a week. So Jacqueline said, well, I'll stay with him. Um, Henri and Xavier, you can go down to, uh, to Saint-Tropez and you can, take, you can take Leslie with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was one of those situations that the magic was there from the beginning um 
And we had, I don't know, two weeks, I suppose. <laughs> two weeks on our own in this house on the beach at Saint-Tropez. And, I mean, the inevitable happened. Um, so, and then the other, and then Jacqueline and Eve came, and then another family and another family. And so there was about, you know, it was a really nice group in this in this. Um, in in this in this house, mm-hmm. um, Ori had a little a little sailboat called Milo, <laughs> so we would go out in the morning um, and and fish, um, and then bring fish back, and then I would make fish soup for the for the evening from the fish. And there <laughs> was fortunately a family from Switzerland who were cousins of Jacqueline, who had two small children and they brought their own au pair. So I didn't have to kind of look after the little kids. I just really just helped out. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And then um, I went on. So that was a month. That was the July. And then for August, I went to Club Leo Lagrange, where the diving club that I joined in Paris had got a deal whereby we got free um, free food and camping accommodation um, for giving diving lessons in the afternoon to oh, their, yes. uh, you know, to the campus. Um, and on the way down to Saint-Tropez, we had stopped in Geneva where Henri's parents, I thought it initially, I thought it was a chateau. I thought they had the whole castle. They didn't. They had a really nice apartment in this chateau right on the edge of Lake Geneva, Lac mm-hmm. Lemont. Um, so I'd met the parents and Eve, the eldest son, had said before I left that they were looking for a sort of au pair kind of, you know, help around the house thing. He said, would, mm-hmm. would I be interested? So I said, yeah, sure. So at the end of the the diving bit August I went up to back to Geneva um, and stayed with them for well until until December I guess or October November sometime then I went back to Paris with them they had an apartment on Avenue Victor Hugo which is one of the big avenues that runs down from Place de l'Etoile right um and I had a nice little, nice little apartment. What was yeah, a nice little room with its own bathroom and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always, this is the thing about au pairs. You're not considered a servant. So most of your meals you take with the family. You might help get it ready, but mm-hmm. you eat with the family. So you are considered as a sort of adjunct of the, of the family. Mm-hmm. Um, and that had always been my experience. Um, so, you know, I'd help get the dinner ready for Monsieur et Madame. Um, and then we'd sit down together and eat and talk, right? Mm-hmm. So they used to go down to Nice. After the, after the Christmas holidays, they would go down to Nice and stay in the Hotel Negresco, which is, I don't know, now, but back then was one of the best hotels in Paris, right? In, mm-hmm. uh, in Nice. Um, so the feeling was I wouldn't have very much to do. I just have alliance. So somebody, 
and I don't know whether it was Henri or whether it was Walter, his his father, suggested I go and work in their business, in their in their office. So that's what I did. I thought this will really perfect my French. So they put me in the département commercial, and you're too young to remember to, or to know about flash cubes, but they were because of connections before the war, um, Les Etablissements Cuno, that was the that was the family name, had the um, had the franchise for Osram lamps for special for for public lighting for the whole of the Parisian area, which meant all street lamps and and, oh, wow. and um and, and uh, you know airfields and all that stuff. Um, and the whole of the franchise for France for special purpose and photographic lighting. Hmm. So one of Osram's best inventions was the flash cube. And back in the day, you would have cameras that worked like, you know, ancient cameras, but they had a little plug thing in the top where you okay. could clip in one of these flash cubes and they were that was a cube with four flashlights in it on each face so that you would take your photo and it would flash and then the thing would the, the cube would twist so it was ready to take the next photo with the with 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 the flash and these were so popular, they just couldn't get enough of them. So I'm in the commercial department, and you'd get the phone call. Ah, bonjour, mademoiselle, mettez-moi 5,000 cube flash. Ah, bonjour, mademoiselle, mettez-moi 10,000 cube flash. And, you know, I mean, it was just fantastic for my, for my, for my French. Um, and it was interesting, too. And, um, and Henri and his family, and Jacqueline even Xavier, um, they had this huge sort of penthouse suite on top yeah. of the office, uh, <laughs> Rue Fourquois. Um, and I would go up and have, have lunch with them, um, you know, a couple of times, a couple of times a week. And sometimes mm -hmm. the boys had been there, sometimes they'd be in, in still be in school. Um, and then um, eventually shit did hit the fan. Um, but I was under contract to, to the firm, so mm -hmm. I had six months to work out my... No, not that long. Yeah, it was, actually. Yeah, it was. So I left in the summer of 69, and I hitchhiked from... Well, I went down to Antibes with Henri's sister and her family and for a couple of weeks, and then from there I hitchhiked from Antibes on my own, all the way through to Istanbul. <laughs> and back then, 1969, I went all through Yugoslavia, which was still Yugoslavia because Tito was still there. Hmm. Um, I went oh, down, to, um, down to Dubrovnik. Now, Albania was still under communist rule, so it was totally closed. So from Dubrovnik, I got a ferry to Corfu, in Greece, and then from Corfu, um, a ferry into Athens, and Greece, we're talking about 
Greece is under a dictatorship. It's the colonels who are, are in power in Greece. Um, and from there, I lived in a beach colony just outside Athens for about six months, six weeks, um, which was really fun. There were a lot of Vietnamese, Vietnam draft dodgers there. Um, and this is all before, you know, the gap year and kids go off and they go to Thailand and it's all kind of laid out and they just take flights because it's all organised. Yeah. Nobody was doing this kind of thing, <laughs> apart from a few refugees from the States. Um, and some Brits, actually. There were a few Brits doing it. Um, and then from Greece, I hitched up to Istanbul and my plan had been to get go from to get a um, I'm not sure if I was going to go by train probably by train or by ferry I can't remember from Istanbul into Lebanon hmm. and then yeah I was going to get a train into Lebanon and then from Lebanon get a ferry to Cyprus and then from Cyprus into Israel and what the British Embassy in Paris had given me while I was there because I went to see them I told them what I was planning to do mm -hmm. they gave me an absolutely valid second British passport which I still have <laughs> which was valid for a year and which I was only to use for Israel because if I had gone into tried to get into Israel with with a Lebanese stamp in my passport hmm. I wouldn't have got in oh yeah right so my Leban, Lebanon Cyprus and then from Cyprus I use my my <laughs> blank passport to get into Israel and at that point I was going to hopefully connect with the kibbutz so um, I in Istanbul I met these three Brit guys with a Bedford Dormobile, which is like an RV. And they were one short. They were supposed to be four, and somebody had dropped out of their team. So they asked me if I was interested in, in joining them. So I said, well, yeah, well, you know, I'd been on my own for three months. I thought, you know, it won't be mm -hmm. bad to um, do what, what they're going to do. Mm -hmm. And they were planning to go from Istanbul into Iran, all the way down to the down, down to the Gulf, and then up the Iranian-Iraqi border, down to the Mediterranean through Turkey, and then back home. So I thought, oh, that sounds good. And of course, the other thing, so we've got Tito in Yugoslavia, which okay. is still one country. Mm -hmm. We've got Greece as a dictatorship under the colonels. And of course, in Iran, we've still got the Shah. It's before the Ayatollah. Hmm. Um, Iran was fabulous. I mean, no problem whatsoever. Um, the Shah was, was um, th there's Persepolis, which is the old Persian capital. Um, and he was planning his, I don't know, his millionth anniversary or something. So Persepolis was, was in... Um, you know they were they were they were reconstructing Persepolis basically, hmm. um, but we went to Shiraz. Um, we we went to we we went all over Iran, 
and none of their sites. We saw ziggurats and crawled all over ziggurats. Ziggurats are kind of early pyramids. They're not the, hmm. they're not the smooth things. They're kind of stepped like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and we could just roll up to these incredible artifacts, sites, and set up camp. We huh. camped next to Cyrus's tomb in the desert. What? And I have, I don't know, I mean, in my mind, because we didn't have, well, I didn't have a camera, right? So, yeah. Um, it was a full moon and our, and our tent's over there and the full moon is shining on Cyrus's tomb. And, and there's no little men with peak caps or anything around, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and then Darius's tomb is in, a, is in a cliff face not far from there so we could crawl all over the cliff and climb up and touch Darius's tomb and those kinds of things. We went down to Isfahan, um, Shiraz, I mean... There's so many sites in, in, in Iran. Um, down to the Persian Gulf. Um, and there, there was probably not a hurricane, a tropical storm, mm -hmm. um, which wrecked the villagers' uh, well. And I can yeah. remember being on, being on the beach and just seeing the palm trees. The rain was just... I mean, it was vert it was horizontal rain, and seeing the palm trees just almost horizontal, right? Wow! Just um, and so next couple of days we helped them rebuild their rebuild their well, and then we went back a similar way up the, <laughs> which is also funny, up the Irani Iraqi border because that was before they went to war, right? Mm, yeah. Um, up to uh, Mount Ararat, which is where, well, you probably know, you probably know yeah. your Bible better than I do. Yeah. Um, you know, where That's Noah's where Ark, Ark sat. stopped. Um, and that was, there's a, there's a lake, Lake Van, right at the foot of Mount Ararat. And mm -hmm. for some reason, because of the geology, I suppose, the water is impregnated with ammonia. So it's not great to drink, but it's a great place to do your washing. So all our, all our washing for the first time was <laughs> squeaky clean. Um, and it was, it was pretty cold. It was minus seven. That would be the sort of top temperature of the day. And that was the first time I saw ice flowers. It was so cold that the ice or the snow would crystallize in its crystalline form. You know when you look at, at snowflakes under a microscope, yeah. you get all those amazing patterns. Yeah. Well, the crystallization process, it's so cold, and it, I, I don't know exactly how it works, but the snow freezes in those shapes. So everywhere you look, there are snow flowers. <laughs> just absolutely gorgeous um so from there we're back in turkey and we go all the way down to the mediterranean coast of turkey um where the same thing none of this is organized none of none of the sites are monitored so we camped in the courtyards of crusader castles and the the greek the greek and roman sites we just i mean we didn't damage anything 
but we were able to walk all over it and climb all over it, you know, <laughs> yeah. because there weren't two million people doing it like <laughs> there are now. Yeah. yeah. Um, and back to um, back to back to back to France, um, and then told Henri all about my my adventures, and he was then buying. He wanted his eldest son Eve like to take over the business. Um, and he wanted to go off and do the painting thing. So he'd bought this farmhouse in Torgeville. Um Anyway, I went back to the UK and my sister, who'd done everything the sort of right, in inverted commas way, um, <laughs> had, just, had just graduated. So we're talking about what I'm going to do. And I said, well, you know, I said, I know what I don't want to do. I'm still not sure about what I do want to do. And she said, you could go and get some A-levels, couldn't you? And I said, well, they're not going to be interested in me, are they? Because I was, I don't know, about 26 at the time, I suppose. No, 24. Mm-hmm. 20, I don't know, somewhere around there, mid-20s. Um, and she said, well, you can go and try. And in fact, they were incredible. Um, this is another important milestone because it was pre-Thatcher. Uh, I don't Margaret know Thatcher. Oh, You've got that. a lot of history to look up. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan are my axes of evil because oh. that and Milton Friedman economics that they both embraced wholeheartedly. Okay. Um, okay, please explain. Hmm? Please explain, I'm curious. Okay, well, I can't... I mean, Milton, Milton Friedman economics is the kind of ultra-capitalism that we have now. Okay. So Thatcher Thatcher sold off. We used to have council housing. Thatcher sold it all off. We had a privatised telecommunications industry. She sold that off. We had a publicly owned, state-owned water service. She sold that off. She also stopped student grants because I went to... um, even for A-levels, my tuition was paid um, and I got a small stipend um, that meant that I didn't, you know, I mean, yeah, I, I had to work, but it was still enough to buy books and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I did A-levels there and my tutor wanted me to go to what we call Oxbridge, like Oxford or Cambridge. And I said, yeah, I'm not going to fit in there. He said, well, you have to go to London. So I put LSE, London School of Economics, on the top of my list to apply for university, right? Um, and again, um, they so this was when you got personal interviews and they so wanted me that I already had one, one grade A, A level, which was, that was the French, obviously. Um, and all they asked for was one grade E of, uh, of the other two that I was doing, which is the lowest just above a fail, right? Hmm. So that was saying, yeah, we really want you. Um, so I started in NSE um, and I started doing sociology because a girl that I'd been really friends with when I'd been an au pair in France mm-hmm. was doing a gap year mm-hmm. as an au pair. Um, and she had a place at, um, not Sussex, was it Sussex? Yeah, I think it was Sussex, um, to do sociology. So I thought, yeah, okay. <laughs> um, 
So I do the first year, and by the end of the first year, I realise that the only job I'm going to be able to get is, it was before HR, right? So okay. the only job I can get is personnel management. And back then, personnel management meant that you were a management lackey, right? You just did what management wanted. So mm -hmm. when they wanted to sack people, you're the ones that had to do it. Mm. So I thought, well, I don't really want to do that. So that summer, I was working in, um, in a solicitor's office. And I thought, well, yeah, this kind of looks quite interesting. And Anyway, I applied to transfer to the law faculty. Um, had no problem being accepted for that. But because we have a system in the UK that is kind of hermetically closed, you can't carry credits forward to other courses, right? Oh, okay. So that meant that I had to start year one in the, in the Faculty of Law, which meant I needed another year's grant, right? So mm -hmm. off I trot to my local authority and I say, you know, I really want to switch to law and I've been accepted, but hand on my shoulder. That's all right, my dear. We understand you young people change your mind. I get another year's grant, which means that all my tuition is paid. Huh. I get enough to live on um, in term time, so I don't have to work in term time. Huh. Um and then I get an you know an extra an extra year, so I got four years of subsidised schooling back then. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, and then, <clears throat> so I did that, and it was wonderful. And I and I graduated, and I decided to become a solicitor because I didn't have the background to be a barrister. I didn't have the confidence back then either. Um, so I got a great job in a firm that, um, as an article clerk, because you have to do two years articles, where you don't get paid a lot, but at least you get paid. Um, and you kind of learn the practical side of law, going to court and all that kind hmm. of stuff. Um, and the firm I was with, that I stayed with all through my career, um, was pretty unique back then at least. We only acted for plaintiffs. Oh, first of all, we don't have WCB in the UK, yeah. right? So injuries, you have to, in order to get compensation and damages for injuries, you have to establish negligence somewhere, right? Okay. So um, we only acted for plaintiffs. Most of our clients were trade union members which meant that we could run cases that were difficult on liability, um, but, but serious, you know, with serious injuries. Um, mm -hmm. And we could run those, whereas an average firm couldn't because they didn't have the union behind them, right? So the union, if we lost, which was rare, but if we lost, then the union would pay the, the costs. Because if you lose the other side, the losing side has to pay the costs of the other side. Right. Oh, wow. Um, and because we were so specialised, we were so good at what we did, mm -hmm. we could get the cases into court or at the doors of the court very quickly. And the insurance companies were always way behind. So 90%, no, probably 98% of the time, we'd get to the door of the court. 
and they'd prefer to settle than take the risk of losing, um, you know, and having to pay damages, right? Mm -hmm. So that was um, that was that was my yeah, and 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 it was and it was great, and I eventually um, left left the left the partnership. Um, one of those, I suppose, one of the things that I used to do was. I was already an equity partner. I kind of gone as far as I could. Um, my personal life wasn't going particularly great, um, and so I decided to emigrate to Australia. And for some reason, they wanted, they accepted forty-year-old lawyers. So I'm sort of planning that and planning how I'm going to actually leave and when and all that kind of thing. And I get a phone call. Um, and it's Henri, who I hadn't heard of for four and a half years. Um, and he said, would you like to come to Torgeville for a weekend? And Torgeville was this farm in Normandy that he'd bought. <laughs> and I said, yeah, OK. I said, yeah, it'd be nice to catch up, kind of, and... So off I went, he picked me up at um, at the Havre and we went to Enfleur and bought the cheese and the wine and went back to, to, to the farmhouse. And he said, so what are you doing? Well, no, first of all, he said, I've left Jacqueline and I just kind of shrugged. I said, well, you know, I said, it's about time. They've been living apart for 20 odd years. Hmm. Um, and he said, what about you? And I said, I'm going to Australia. And he said, well, you can't. I said, pardon. <laughs> and he said, he said, you can't. It's too far away. <laughs> and I shrugged again. I said, well, maybe you'd better do something about it. And it's kind of the rest is, is history. Um, because we decided that we would finally do something about it. Um, I left the firm, we moved to France because there's no way he would have come to England. Hmm. Um, and I said, my only condition was it's not, I'm not going to come to Torchville where it rains more than it does in London, right? <laughs> so we decided on, um, we decided on Provence um, and found another farmhouse just outside, uh, just outside Aix-en-Provence. So, you know, I mean, an absolutely idyllic scenario. Um, I got pregnant very quickly and our son was born in May of 88. So I left England in June of 87 and then he was born in May of 88. Mm. Um, and in retrospect, it was, um, I'm not, I don't regret the decision, but we shouldn't have gone to Provence because my my definition was, yes, it's beautiful. It's a wonderful place to go on holiday. But you've got the the sort of remains of the aristocracy who certainly don't want to know any newcomers at the mm -hmm. top. At the bottom, you've got the paysan, the paysan who certainly don't want to know you if you haven't been around for 4,000 years. And then everybody in the middle is from somewhere else. So they're all kind of running faster and faster to stay in the same place. 
and the French mm. don't do volunteerism, so you can't go off and join, uh, you know, uh, whatever, local organisations, community organisations, mm-hmm. um, to kind of connect. Yeah. Um, so, oh, and then the other thing was, they have a wonderful, French have a wonderful maternelle system, so that goes from sort of two, <clears throat> like, like, like daycare, Mm. But it's but it's free. Now I don't know, but it was then. Um, and that goes on until sort of five, six. And it's totally play-based, huh. except maybe for, for the last year is a little bit of kind of intro of school. But then they go from that to what they call CP, core préparatoire, where the kids are put in desks in rows and expected to sort of copy things down from the blackboard. <laughs> no, I thought, I'm not putting my baby through this. And so there was, there, was, there was that. I was looking for an alternative school, basically, and there mm-hmm. wasn't one locally. Um, and then when I... We, we had the opportunity of doing a house exchange. So 19, 1992, Alexander is four, um, we do a house exchange with this couple. The guy is an, is an artist, an established artist, and he wants to come to Provence and do the, you know, the Van Gogh thing. So we do that house, that house swap. They live in Denver, and it was when Denver was still you know, a, 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 a big, big, big city facilities and a small town atmosphere. It was fabulous. Colorado? We- hmm? Denver, Colorado? Yeah. Cool. Um, the weather was fantastic. Um, we had Alexander in a, in a daycare three, four mornings a week, just down the road. Um, we discovered garage sales. We discovered 24-hour shopping. We discovered... People that smiled at you and asked you how you were and packed your shopping bag in the in the supermarket and all that yeah. kind of thing. Um, and it was it was a really lovely time. And Ori, who was very well travelled, but when the French travel, they take France with them, generally speaking, right? But he couldn't take France with him for three months, so he kind of gradually let go of whatever was French and integrated with this this happy-go-lucky... I mean, it's superficial, that kind of bonhomie and you wave at people in the street and all that kind mm-hmm. of thing. But it still oils the wheels of social intercourse, right? Yeah. So <clears throat> we had that experience and we come back home and it's kind of... What is it? Must have been probably a couple of weeks before Christmas of 92. And we both go into a depression. Ori was prone to depression anyway. I just get fed up. But he really went down because for the French, the all right, the, it's stereotypical, it's stereotypes, and I'm generalising, but generally speaking... For the French, the glass is always half empty. It's not half mm. full, right? 
Mm. And that makes a huge difference in your sort of general outlook. Um, so we go back and nobody seems to have noticed that we've even gone. Nobody smiles at us in the, in the welcome home or did you have a good time? Nothing. We go down to the supermarket and we're waiting to have a conversation with the cashier and have the young man pack our bags. And of course, they don't do any of that, right? So Ori's getting more and more depressed. So I say, well, and Christmas was always a bad time anyway. So I said, look, I'm going to take Alexander and we're going to go back to Portsmouth for, for Christmas. OK, so I could see all my old diving mates and, um, and stay with my mum. Um, so we did that and we coming back, we come back and I'm almost ready to say, look, you know, we'll go and live, we'll go back to the UK, you move to Cherbourg and we'll do, you know, every weekend or something. Mm -hmm. That was in my head. Um, the first thing he says is, I think, I think we need another boat. Because when I first moved to France, he had a really nice sailboat, which we had for about three years. And then I said, look, we should really kind of explore the interior and the mountains a bit in the summer as well. Yeah. So he sold it and that's what we did for a couple of years. So we haven't got a boat. So he says, well, I think we need another boat. And I said, I think that's a really good idea. Mm. So we're... Um, the kids didn't used to go to school in France on Wednesdays. They would go Saturday mornings instead. Yeah, huh. I know. Um, so it's a Wednesday and we're driving along to look at this boat. And the subject of blue water cruising comes up. So blue water cruising is when you take off on a boat and you cross oceans and that kind of thing. Yeah. So... We're talking about that, and I turn round to Alexander, who's in the back, and I say, no, we can't do that, darling. Daddy says he's too old. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. It's a Wednesday. I remember that. By the Sunday, he's on a plane to Miami because it's the Miami boat show, and we think maybe we can find a, a, a boat over that side of the Atlantic, and then we don't have to put Alexander through, a, through an Atlantic crossing. So 24 hours later, he said, I'm on my way home. He said, I wouldn't even go, go go to sea on a lake in anything that's for sale here. So he comes back and we eventually, um, we're looking for boats. We haven't found one. It's now May of 93 and we want to be gone because you have to pick your weather windows, right? You, mm -hmm. you want to pick up the trades, but you want to get those trades before the really bad weather uh, hits the North Atlantic. <clears throat> so you got a window from about early November through to late May, early June. Early June is pushing it because mm -hmm. then June is hurricane season, right? Okay. Um, so... We haven't found one by May, and then we get a call from the um, the agent for Ovni boats, um, the the Mediterranean agent for Ovni boats. Ori had always had Ovnis, and they are fantastic boats, and they build in aluminium. Hmm. Um, so 
we that Eric phones up and says, look, the yard's got a slot. So if you want it, we'll build you the boat. So he said, but it's going to be, you know, this, the, you, the, 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 the plan is charter. So lots of bunks and things. He said, no, no, don't worry. He said, I'm, I will supervise it and we'll design the interior. So the exterior will be the same, but the interior will be designed for long distance cruising. Okay. So lots of things happened, which I won't bore you with, but we eventually left Sable Dolon, where their yard is, on the, at the end of October, which was leaving it a bit late. In fact, I think it was the 31st of October. Um, make it down to the Canaries, stay in the Canaries for two or three months just to kind of get ship shape and things. Um, and then go out to the Cape Verdes, um, spend six weeks in the Cape Verdes, and then we start our crossing. Um, and we make landfall on Guadeloupe, um, do a, do a, give Alexander a chance to, to scream and have fun, do a, do a club med thing for three or four days, then down to Martinique, and then, because it's now in, well into June, down to Trinidad and Tobago, because Trinidad and Tobago, <clears throat> are outside, I'm going to have to stop talking soon, <clears throat> Trinidad and Tobago are outside the hurricane belt. They get okay. tropical storms, but they don't get hurricanes. Okay. So essentially we spent time there. And when we left, we said it will be either six months or, or four years. Those were our kind of... <laughs> um, well, it ended up being three and a half years. And why did we end up in Canada? Because after a while... And I don't really know why. I can't remember. Neither of us wanted to go back to Europe. So where are we going to go? Well, should be bilingual. Okay, that means Canada. Um, ooh, not going to live on the East Coast. The weather's too bad. So that meant the West Coast. Um, and I already always had a thing right from a kid, just looking at maps, back in the day mm -hmm. when you had atlases, you know, and you could yeah. actually see, instead of stupid little screens. Um, a thing about what I called the triangle, which was uh, Vancouver, Victoria, Seattle, just from okay. a geographical point of view. I mean, the, 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 okay. it's amazing. I mean, there's nothing but islands and forests and, and more islands and more forests and rivers and mountains and it's mm -hmm. just incredible. Um, so okay, uh, it'll be it'll be the west coast, and we stayed in Trinidad for a year, still living on the boat. Put Alexander into school. I went off to UE, that's the University of the West Indies, and did first year biology, which was great because it was all tropical biology. Hmm. So that was really fascinating. Put Alexander into school so he wasn't totally dehumanized. Um, and while we were there, it's 96 now, and Hong Kong is changing hands in 97. So okay. I said, look, if we're going to Canada, let's get ahead of the wave, that immigration wave, and start putting in for our landed immigrant visas while we're here. Mm -hmm. So that's what we did. Um, and it's terribly racist, but we got absolutely red carpet treatment. And every time we went down to the High Commission, it, 
secretary. Oh, sir, the yachties were here. Oh, send them up. And we'd go up and have tea with the vice consul, you know, things like that. So we got our landed immigrant visas. We um, sailed on for, no, I can't remember exactly. We did all the north coast of Venezuela. We did, well, we didn't go ashore in Jamaica. We just stayed overnight. Uh, the Caymans uh, and Cuba. We finished up with um, six weeks in Cuba, which was fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Crossed to Fort Lauderdale with the intention of actually doing Nasser and um, and my poor son who'd never had anything to do with Disney, so we were going to take him to Disney. And it was the biggest culture shock of the whole trip. It was awful, absolutely awful. So we just packed everything up, um, put the boat up for put the boat up for sale and flew up to, we decided to, rather than come into Vancouver, Henri mm had -hmm. found the clipper. So we flew to Seattle, spent a couple of days in Seattle, and then got the clipper into Victoria. Mm -hmm. So we're getting off the clipper with all these American tourists and the immigration officer, oh, Oh, this is interesting. Oh, well, would you mind waiting to see the, the chief immigration officer? So, no, no, not at all. So we get ushered into this woman's office and she's got the three passports with these huge forms in them. So she looks at those. Oh, my. Oh, my. How interesting. Well, boom, boom, boom. Welcome to Canada. Welcome to Canada. Welcome to Canada. If <laughs> we were in. <laughs> Easy arrival. Sounds like... So I think, um, just as a sort of general thing for young people, we are always freer than we think we are. We have to be courageous in not committing ourselves to debt, um, not wanting things that we can't really afford just to fill gaps in our personal lives. Um, you don't actually have to own a house. Um, lots of societies, it's quite normal to rent for their entire lives. We've mm -hmm. got into this mindset where, and all right, I own this, okay, I, I'm, but I don't know what it's like in France now, but when I was when I was living in France in in the sixties, even very well off people, it would be quite normal for them to rent their homes. Mm -hmm. It wasn't normal to spend out huge you know huge amounts of money and then be locked into this mortgage thing. Mm -hmm. um, but it's mostly, I think, everything that goes with that. Um, it's like the food thing. Um, you can live on beans and rice and with some chilli sauce. It's not bad. But you don't open a tin, right? You know how to prepare your pulses because you soak them and, and all that kind of thing. And mm -hmm. those are the skills that are, that, are, that are lost. The skills of being able to make do and, um, and be happy making do because... 
you've got you know you've got you you've got a project that's more important whatever that project might be and you know taking off on a boat for most people is impossible and it it is a different world i know but there are things you know there are there are possibilities if you have skills people always need other people with skills to do stuff for them so whether mm-hmm. it's a boat or an rv it is it it is possible to take off and i mean there's a case in point there's a young lad i know who's 26 now i think and we helped him and his mum when he was about eight or nine and they lived with us for a while mm-hmm. and he's kind of I'm a kind of mentor for him. Cool. Um, and he, he's, he's quite amazing. When we got into, he got in touch when he just finished his um, Red Seal chef's ticket at Camosun, right? Okay. And he'd got a job at, um, at Laurel Point Inn. So he got in touch and he wanted to tell me all about it. And he'd also bought himself a Tesla. So I thought, Duskin, you know, you're just starting on your career and you've got this kind of debt around your neck. And I didn't say it because he was so proud of his Tesla. Mm-hmm. And then COVID hits. Hmm. Oh, my God, he is really going to crash now. Hmm. He didn't get in touch for a while. In fact, from in fact, for most of COVID, and I didn't reach out. I thought I don't want to know what's going wrong. Hmm. Just by he he soon left Laurel Point Inn okay. because there wasn't enough work. Mm-hmm. So he started for Uber Eats and and the and the the you know the the delivery services. Okay. And then he started doing that and a chef's job at one of the village franchises. And now he's in a situation where the Tesla is nearly paid off. (laughs) He has managed to put, he's got enough together to put put on a down payment on an apartment in Langford, which will be finished late, I don't know, late next year, Hmm. right? And he's got such a good work ethic that he's been adopted by the franchise owner of all the villages who wants to groom him for uh, opening a village restaurant in Langford down the road. But in the meantime... He, there is a flat over the top of the village restaurant in Estevan. Okay. In Estevan Village, right? Yeah. And he's put Duskin in that flat. <laughs> so Duskin now has somewhere to live, and he pays. I mean, it's not a fortune, but he, he, so he's got somewhere to live. He's the head chef at the village, the, the Royal Oak Village in, in Royal Oak, right? Yeah. And he's got really good working relationship with this, with this guy, for down the road (laughs) I said well how did you do it how did you manage he said well I just saved I just worked and saved 
Yeah. Uh, I mean, he doesn't drink or hardly. I mean, he's got he's got he's got friends, and he'll go out occasionally. But yeah. you know, it's <laughs> so you know. Yeah. I thought that was a a real a real success story. You know. Yeah. I mean, I keep having to say to him, no, you know, you you, you can you know. You've got everything in place. You can lighten up a bit now. You know, you can have start. To have, have a little bit fun. more fun. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Got to have fun every now and then. So I think, I mean, me taking off, um, me planning to 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 go to Australia. I mean, that was a midlife crisis. Um, and when I when that kind of thing. When I'm so fed up with what I'm doing, or it's not going any further, or it's not evolving in the way I want, when all those things aren't going right, mm-hmm. then I tend to change the goalposts completely. Hmm. So, you know, that was emigrating to Australia was certainly a good idea at the time. <laughs> um, and we've just come back from a trip to, well, Paris to see my stepsons. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, the, and the French family, and London to see some former colleagues mm-hmm. and some cousins, some English cousins, and then down to Cornwall to stay with my niece and, um, and her partner, her husband, who's an amazing guy. Hmm. And every situation was fantastic. The connections were so strong. With Alexander, with Aziza, who's three and a half, my 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 hmm. granddaughter, with Alyssa, his partner, to the extent that we're down in Cornwall, and Alexander and I have gone out, and we're doing a gin tasting. There's a they, they make gin down there, right? So we're doing a gin yeah. tasting, and he says, "So why did you, de- you know, and everything?" And we're both, you know, we're on a real high. So I know where the question is coming from. He said, so why did you and Dad decide on Canada? And the best answer I could give him was it seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> um, because, you know, we, we were visiting, so things are inevitably compressed and they're rich. But, you know, it did get me thinking, like, what you know what would life have been like if we hadn't if we'd gone back to if we'd gone back to france if well we, there was no way he would come to the uk but i mean i i, I and i suppose i realize how much i miss europe hmm. then just for the people listening that story was from your most recent trip right yes yes okay. that's right yeah yeah for from uh yeah okay Okay, so there's a lot of things in there. What are the biggest things that you've learned over your life that you think would, that you wish you learned earlier? I'm not sure that there are any, actually, except, well, Judaism, I suppose. Hmm. I wish I had... um, done something about that earlier that's that's that side is orange family were were jewish um they weren't in camps but they survived nearly five years of nazi occupation in paris right Hmm. 
Hmm. Um, they were German of origin, so lots of the extended family were were murdered. His grandfather was murdered in Theresienstadt. Um, and so there were, you know, there were a number of reactions among Jewish families after the war, and everybody from his family and also from Jacqueline's family just completely turned their backs on anything to do with Judaism. Hmm. So even Xavier are fully Jewish because their mother and their father. Um, were Jewish, mm-hmm. but they have absolutely no sense of identity uh, whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So, um, when I became Jewish, I took the name Ruthie, right? Mm-hmm. Ruth. And that was because the person who was most influential in getting me to that position was uh, Ruth Bornstein, who was Henri's first cousin. Yeah. Ruth and her sister had been staying with Henri's family in 1938, early 39, while their parents were in Luxembourg getting visas to try and get the family out. Mm-hmm. And Henri and Ruth had bonded well during that time. The visas came through in time and they all went off to Mm -hmm. the States, to Gary, Indiana. So she grew up there and had her family there and everything else. So we fast forward now and it's just after, we're in France, it's it's a few weeks after Alexander's been born. Or maybe, no, it was probably before, just before. And he tells me, or he tells me about Ruth. Um, and how she'd always wanted to go and live in Israel. So the kids mm-hmm. are all grown up, left home. So she says to her husband, now we can go to Israel. And her, she says, well, I don't want to go to Israel. So she takes off on her own. Um, and the the family, the American family is incensed. You've abandoned us. You're putting yourself in danger because it was the time when Saddam was lobbing scuds into Jerusalem, scud mm. missiles, right? So Ari's telling me this story, and of course I'm saying, oh, but this is fantastic, you know, the woman is living her dream, she's living... And, you know, I was really keen to meet her, so she would come through, for July and August, she would come through Europe, see whoever was left of the family, and then go and spend August with her kids in and grandkids in the States. So... She came through and she came to visit us the first time when, I don't know, Alexander would have been, so she would have come, he was May, so June, he would have been about six weeks old. Um, Mm -hmm. And we got on really well and she knew I was interested because what had attracted me to Judaism in the first place was, was family. Um... I mean, I'd spent a lot of time around Henri's family and Mm -hmm. his sister and her family and and all that. And there was was a really strong sense of, you know, we have our differences, but when you need me, I'm here. Really a real sense of 
togetherness and, and family, which I'd never mm. known growing up. Mm. really hadn't. Um, so that was something that was really close to my heart. And um, so she would come, she, you know, she came every summer until we took off on the boat. And she'd bring books for mm -hmm. me and she'd bring toys for Alexander and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and then so while we were on the boat, we didn't see her at all. And then um, we've, you know, we've, we're, we're now off the boat. We're in Canada. We're in Sanixton. Um, and she gets in touch and she says, I'm, I've got a timeshare in a, in a resort and all the family's coming and I'd love for you to come down too. So we went and it was in French Lick, which apparently, I mean, it was a lovely weekend, but it was a pretty rundown resort because it had been, you know, it was sort of 1930s when all the Jews would go there kind of thing. <laughs> um, and we met all the family and Alexander discovered all these cousins that he didn't know he had. Right. <laughs> so it was a great success. Um, and then um, Ruth had been coaching her middle grandson for his bar mitzvah. So she goes back to Israel and unfortunately six months later she had a heart attack and she died. Hmm. But we've met the family and we've made that connection so we get an invite to um, to David's bar mitzvah. Henri says, no, I'm, I'm, I've had enough travel, you guys go. So we went down and again it was a wonderful weekend and my little nine, ten-year-old sees all this cargo falling out of the sky for this kid that's only two years older than him, right? Mm -hmm. So we come back home and he says, I want to be Jewish. Yeah, all right, you want to be Jewish. Six months later, this kid is still saying, I want to be Jewish. So I said to Ari, I said, you have to go and see the rabbi. This kid is serious. So we went and saw the rabbi who was a new young rabbi straight out of rabbinical school. Hmm. And he was very sweet with me and he just said, look, he wants to be Jewish, okay, well, let him come to Hebrew school and we'll see how it goes, right? Mm -hmm. So we did that. We fast forward a couple of years, he's happy and he's learning. And it gets to B'nai Mitzvah class, like the year before you're due to have your Bar Mitzvah. Mm -hmm. It's also the second intifada, so that means there's all the suicide bombings in and and in in, in Israel, mm -hmm. and restaurants and you know I mean horrendous bloodshed. Um, but he's Alexander lives in a liberal household, so he's getting the story from the Palestinians' point of view as well, right? Mm -hmm. So he's in B'nai Mitzvah class and they're talking about how dreadful the, you know, the suicide attacks are. And yes, they are. But, you know, why are the Palestinians doing this? What's going on in the, in the occupied territory? Mm -hmm. So he gets sat on and not physically bullied, but he's getting very confused because it's in total conflict with, with the message that, that he's getting at home. Mm -hmm. So anyway, in the end, and I'm finding out what a, what a circumcision is when you're when you're a young adult, right? And it meant a full, you know, a general anaesthetic. And I'm like, my baby. Um, so anyway, we said, look, do you need us to make a decision for you? And he said, well, yeah, I think I do. Um, so we said, well, think about it, and then we'll talk again tomorrow. 
So we knew what we were going to say, mm -hmm. um, but we made it look as if we'd been discussing it. Um, mm -hmm. And we said, look, we just think it's too soon. You want to do this when you're, when you're, eight, when you're 16, we're behind you 100%. But we think there are too many issues at the moment. And basically, he's doing it then. I think he was doing it for the wrong reasons. He was just doing it for the cargo coming out of the sky. You know? yeah. um, so anyway, there's no, there's no rabbi by now because they've got rid of the young man that we saw. Um, mm -hmm. There's nowhere for him to go. He's, so he just drifts, drifts away, right? We mm -hmm. fast forward two years. It's... it's it's not, what is it? Um, let me, let me, let me get this right. So it's 2003. Yeah, it's 2003. And we're coming back from, we've been to, um, in the Rockies there, Jasper. And we're driving back and he says, out of the blue, no, none of us know where it came from. I think I'll go to synagogue on Shabbat. He's driving, managed to keep the car on the road. And I say, yeah, yeah, good idea. You haven't seen the guys for, for quite a while. Hmm. So he drops off to um, synagogue on Shabbat and mm -hmm. comes home. So how was it? Mum, it was like going home. I'm going to become Jewish and I'm going to have my bar mitzvah. And he was in such a different place than he had hmm. been two years previously, right? Hmm. And by then they had a rabbi who's the same rabbi that we have now, who is just amazing, hmm. um, who had this kind of connection with Alexander immediately, because he says, I always knew he was Jewish. I always knew he was Jewish. So he starts studying for his, for his bar mitzvah. Um, I said, well, you're not taking time off school, so for the circumcision, he gets his circumcision done in, a, in the Christmas holidays. Um, goes to Mikvah in March of 94 and his bar mitzvah is I think it was it was right at the end of October 94 hmm. the other event was Ori's first heart attack at the beginning of October 94 we're not sure that he's actually going to be able to um, be at the bar mitzvah but he recovers sufficiently, and and and, and mm -hmm. he is, and Harry, our rabbi, remembers it to this day. He he'd always said, "Well, I'm not going to, you know, I'll be there, but I won't be on the beamer," which is the kind of, I mean, it's what became altars in in Christianity, right? So mm -hmm. it's a kind of platform and a table, um, and. As part of the as part of the, the the ceremony, the father passes a Torah because we have Torahs in, in scrolls, right? So mm -hmm. they're, they're still scrolls. Passes a Torah scroll to his son, and Harry says there were you know there were there were there were tears in his eyes. Um, atheist as as he was, and he was always you know as an adult at least he was always an atheist. Hmm. And he'd had no Jewish background because he'd been brought, I mean, their most valuable passport, if you like, growing up in, in 
in Nazi Paris was their baptism certificate. So his sister was educated by nuns in a convent and he was in, educated by brothers, you know, by Jesuit brothers. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> so my baby becomes Jewish and then um, Ari has his second heart attack between the night between Christmas Day and Boxing Day. Um, and, and he and he left us. Um, mm. So, I mean, when I tell this story, and I've told this story to some people at the congregation, and somebody said, well, perhaps he felt his work had been done, because Alexander's drosh, when they have their bar mitzvah, they have to give a kind of, they have a Torah portion, which they have to read in Hebrew, um, and then they have to give a kind of sermon based on what they've read and how it applies to their lives or, or modern day life, right? Mm -hmm. um, and what he did was he just told the family story and ended up by saying, you know, I'm, the circle's been broken and I'm mending the circle, yeah. which was, you know, I mean, all right, he was 15 and somebody said, well, you know, it just shows you the difference between a 12-year-old giving a drosh and a 15-year-old because there's that much more maturity and understanding and everything, yeah. you know. Um, and then I followed, it took me a while. And what attracted me, well, mostly, again, family and community. Hmm. Um, I mean, I'm not particularly at the moment, there's so much shit going down, I'm not even sure that I believe in some higher power. Um, but like one of Alexander's teachers said, right going back to the beginning, they said, I said, when I was really worried that he was doing it for the wrong reasons, because he was, right? Mm -hmm. I said, he doesn't believe it. I know he doesn't believe it. And Leah just looked at me, she said, this is Judaism, she said doesn't matter what you believe, it's how you live your life. I love that. Whoa! <laughs> if what matters is how you live your life, what does being Jewish mean for how you live your life? Community, connection. Um, also, I think, doing things for, for other people. We, one, of, one, of, one, of the, one of our principles is tikkun olam. And that's a duty to repair the world. You're not okay. going to finish the job, but you need to assist in making the world a better place. Okay, that's cool. And then I assume that that's something that the rest of the world could learn by looking at Judaism, and that's really Absolutely. important. Yeah. Okay, that's cool. I really, really like it when there's specific principles that can be yeah. applied yeah. to everybody. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we have um, we have a group called Avodah in the commune in the synagogue um, that does social action. So hmm. they help out at the food banks. They help out at threshold. They 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 support financially Burnside Gorge and things like that. What we're trying to do is push that now or move that forward. Still do that because it's essential. But in an ideal society, we wouldn't need social action. We wouldn't need food banks, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so the other arm is social justice. So we're part of an organisation called GVAT, Greater Victoria Acting Together, mm -hmm. which, is, which is campaigning for affordable housing and all that kind of thing now. So 
That's the cool. that's the next step from from social action and feeling good because you're putting food in into food banks, but actually trying to change the system that causes that problem in the first place. Okay. Cool. And housing is one of the principal things I think. Mm-hmm. Okay. I personally have a little framework about that I used to think about life, and it's the framework of bets or investments, and I either put money, time, energy into something, hoping for a specific return. What do you believe is worth betting on? Do you want a purely financial answer? No, or? not financial. Uh, then, I then I think um, I, I think the the most the, the the best place to to spend your energy, which is your most valuable resource, I think your energy and your time is in your family and your community and and the people around you okay so that's where to put all it that's where to lay your cards down that's yeah. where to go all in yeah okay cool i've run that answer a lot and what i'm really curious is about to see how much it comes up over all of the podcasts that i do because yeah. if it yeah. comes up really consistently yeah. then yeah i mean we'll you know from something. the investment point of view you need to you need to be as viable as you can be financially but you know, we should be. I mean, like the New Zealanders, they don't, they don't, <laughs> they don't work to. They live. They, they they work to live. They don't live to work. <laughs> yeah, I like that. That ties perfectly into my next question. What are your thoughts on money, work, and business? We have a rotten, rotten capitalist system, and if we don't change it, we're not going to survive. Okay, um, uh, how, what would you propose as better? Well, I mean, we need to, we need to, we need to stop being complacent about the kind of lifestyles that we lead. We, we lead the lifestyles we've got because it's on the backs of, 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 of colonization. That, that, that was the first thing. Um, and we've got used to that. We're not prepared to, most of us, prepared to accept the involvement that, that that we're able to live the lives we lead because of the people that came before us, um, and also that we need to learn from them in terms of preservation of 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 natural systems because they knew how the planet worked. They didn't have mm. complicated names for it, but yeah. they knew how it worked, and they yeah. worked with it instead of working against it. Okay. So we need to move back into living in harmony with people and the planet. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So what are your thoughts on relationships? Flipping it around, including the one with yourself. Just like how we relate to people. Okay. You know? um, and this is where we get to the really difficult bit because and going back to the beginning and, and influence of social media, how do we build strong children? Hmm. Children who know who they are and are prepared to stand up for who they are so that they can, they can deflect the influences, all the influences that they get from outside. Hmm. Um, it, all, I mean, all right, there's some good influences from outside. I'm not saying that you shouldn't be influenced by those, but there's so much shit out there. And... Quite honestly, parents don't spend enough time with their kids, hmm. or or if if they do, it's not doing in the main 
it's not doing really family-centered stuff. It's screens or, or... I mean, it's sitting down... I mean, and this is another family thing with Judaism. Friday night is, is for, for a lot of Jewish families, is very special because it brings everybody together for a meal. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, that happens most, most, most weeks. For, for not every Jewish family by any means, but it's something to 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 anchor the yeah. the family. Um, yeah. Eating meals together, having dinner together, actually sitting down instead of grabbing a sandwich before you go off to football or something, right? Yeah. Okay. I don't know how you get there, but <laughs> you get to the place where you're actually intentionally investing I think in your you, relationships. You, you try and understand your children and try and do things with them that they are interested in. And forget the organization, forget the play dates. Everything is so organized. You know, I mean I mean kids in, 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 in daycare, oh yeah, well they you know they've got these they've got they've got these play dates. There's no I mean, this is what I'm worried about with my granddaughter. And she'll, she'll go to school and the kind of creativity she shows in her play is incredible. Yeah. You know, I mean, she can, she can amuse herself with a couple of little figures and, and, and a few cloths and a... And a it, it's amazing yeah. what, what, what they'll do when they're left to their own devices. You can provide... You know, the fun she has in the bath with my... Cause <laughs> Plastic bottles and plastic tubes and squirty yeah. things. You know, they don't need these ridiculous toys. No. no. But all the... My, my son's a contractor, right? So he's, mm-hmm. I said, I want a box of offcuts, right? So yes. all these bits of yeah. two-by-fours and all the rest of it, I got in a box there. And she builds castles and she's three and a half. She builds castles. I mean, I'm helping and she always wants me there. And then she puts her little figures in and, and puts them to bed in their little houses, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. When I was little, my dad, he worked construction too, and he would yeah. bring home the offcuts and yeah. the junk yeah. two-by-fours, yeah. and I would have a hammer and some nails, and I'd build really cool things. I was so excited about it. I was more excited when I got a big pile of sand to build castles out of than I was excited when I got, like, new toys. <laughs> Do you have any other thoughts on relationships applied to more once you move out of the familial sense where it's parent-child? Um, I think I think that's a general rule that will ca- will, will carry you through. I mean, find try and find people that you have things in activities in common with. Share share the activities you like. Um, now and again, you will find a certain amount of chemistry. Yeah. Um, be prepared to follow that chemistry, but not forget who you are. Hmm. If it's a chemistry that involves you changing completely, then it, it, it's it's not it's not good for you. Mm-hmm. It's that confidence that I mean, success helps. So that you know, when you're when you're in school, if you can be successful at something, then mm-hmm. that helps build that build that confidence. Mm. Um, not all kids are because of the the, the the way schools work. You need to fit mm-hmm. into the box, and, mm. and many don't. So they're the ones that 
we need to watch out for and whose parents yeah. need to watch out for. Yeah. I mean, if the, if the kind of money that was spent on... <laughs> well, this NASA thing, right? Artemis or whatever it's called that's just come back to Earth or is coming back to Earth. Hmm. Uh, if we invested in early childhood support to parents, to teachers... So that teachers could actually teach again instead of filling out forms and doing all the administrative stuff they have to do. Yeah. We wouldn't be having the problems down the road that we've got now. Yeah. Because you would be building strong, you know, strong, strong people. But people need that support. Mm. And kids need that support. But, you know, I mean, that's the problem. The problem with democracy, right? Yeah. Any politician is only looking five years down the road. They're not looking fifteen years down the road. <laughs> and if you want to build because a society, yeah, I know, I know. And I don't want any other sort of society other than a democracy with all mm -hmm. its faults. But mm. um, you know, I mean, we'll see. We'll we'll see how far it goes. But I mean, the new um, the new premier Eb has got a fantastic background. In, in 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 social justice, he was a, a, a human rights lawyer in um, in Vancouver. Cool. So I mean, he's really he's he he perceives that you know affordable housing is is one of the keys, and he's really pushing affordable housing. Okay. Um, so I think I would love to come back to talking about relationships, but for the concerns of time. Yeah. Let's hop on to, imagine you get the experience to design a class that everyone has to take in high school. What would the class be? Grade 12 students. Grade 12. One hour a day, five days a week. I think it would be the kind of class whereby each student takes it in turn to think of a subject that they would like to talk about. Okay. And then the class has a week to prepare to say whatever they want to say on that particular subject. Okay. And see what the interaction, see what that, see what that produces. Okay. So setting people free to chase their curiosity yes. and all that stuff. Yes. That'd be fun. Yeah, and I think you know, taking it out, taking it outside the box. I would say any course that that takes kids outside the box, and and ideally go and do it outside in nature. <laughs> yeah, that'd be fun. Now another imaginary scenario. Imagine you get to share a single experience with every single person on the planet as a gift. They get it, and they get to have it for themselves, for their own pleasure. It can last. Ten minutes, it can last ten years. Um, it's one I haven't actually mentioned. Particularly, particularly relevant in today's world. So, it happened when we were, we were driving back from the Persian Gulf and we're on the Iran-Iraqi border. Mm -hmm. um, we've been driving all night. Mm -hmm. So we stop. Um, I mean, it was it wasn't a dirt track, but it was a you know it wasn't a sort of main road or anything. Mm -hmm. 
we stopped to make some breakfast. And it's early morning, and on the hillside, a couple of k away, there's a Bedouin encampment. Okay. Big, big black tents, right? Hmm. And we're getting, we're, we're getting breakfast ready, and then one of us sees this little figure walking through the desert, carrying a tray with glasses and a big jug. And that child was bringing us chai tea. There were three, there were four of us, so there were four glasses, and he poured us four glasses of chai from the, from the, from the cup, from the jug, yeah. and gave us each one, and sort of said salam, and I mean, we couldn't, we couldn't communicate. Hmm. And when we, tried to give him something like, you know, some spaghetti or something. Hmm. Um, he, he refused and said, no, that's okay, this is, this is, this, this is for you, you are visitors. And I mean, whatever he was trying to say, it was that kind of thing. Yeah. And he took the glasses and walked all the way back to his Bedouin camp. Huh. Uh, absolutely no reason to show hospitality to strangers. But he did. And, you know, he walked, I don't know, maybe not 2K, but, you know, at least, well, there and back, at least 2K under the hot sun to serve people that he had never met and would never see again. And who, compared with, you know, his family had a camel, maybe, you know, the big truck, and oh, it was... I don't know how much effect it had on my three compatriots, but it certainly had a very profound effect on me. Hmm. And it's a story that just means, you know, people are people and you cannot put people into boxes. And um, I mean, I don't know if his mum had said, oh, look, or his dad or whatever, you know, probably, yeah. but that was their tradition. They welcomed strangers. I mean, that wouldn't happen now. No, it wouldn't. You know. Huh. And that's the tragedy of our world. Yeah. Definitely is. Okay. Only a couple more. Hmm? So, yeah, no, I'm good. Perfect. Okay. So, what did you learn from your parents that set you up to live well? Uh, or what did you have to teach yourself that set you up to live well? Yeah, <laughs> if the, right. if the uh, first one um, Well, I guess from my from my mum, I learned how to pinch and scrape and make ends meet. She was amazing at that. How to cook, uh, how to cook cheap but good food. Um, reading, I suppose, the importance of libraries and the importance of reading. Hmm. Because she took us, I mean, you know, we didn't have many toys or anything, so she would always take us to the library. Oh, and how housework can always be left to the next day. She would always, if the weather was nice, she would always take us out down to the beach and <laughs> leave the, you know, leave, leave, leave the housework. So <laughs> I like the last one. Yeah. It's so yeah. hard to study when it's beautiful outside. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, then you go outside and study, you know? Yep. That works too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Then now, in spite of having a million more questions that I would like to ask, time demands that I ask the yep. last question. Right. And that is, imagine that I forget everything that you've told me so far today. And the only thing that I remember from you and about you is what you say during this next short span of time. What is the most important piece of advice or thing that you have to share with me, Simon Funk, at this point in time? Um, I think it's learning to make the best use overall of what you have. If you have multiple resources, then you help other people with those multiple resources. If you don't, you make sure that your immediate entourage is as happy as they can be with what they've got. And you try and be, uh, you know, get off the consumer wagon because it doesn't lead anywhere except to the next mall. And I hardly ever go to malls. <laughs> well, thank you for speaking with me, Ruthie. <laughs> well, it's been, well, thank you for letting me rabbit on. Hello, everyone. It's Simon. I know you thought you were done with me, but I've still got a few things to say. The first is thank you. I really appreciate that you're taking the time to listen to my conversations, and I hope that they're adding value to your lives. The second is that if you're enjoying the podcast and want to support me in what I'm doing, you can do that in a few ways. The first is by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. The second is by subscribing to my email newsletter. This can be found by going to my website, learningfromhumanity.com, scrolling down to the section titled Interviews, and filling out the form titled Want to Hear About New Content. The third way you can help me out is by following me on Instagram at learningfromhumanity. The mailing list and Instagram are similar in that those are the places where you will hear about cool new content. News of anything new will be shared via those channels. The final and most important way you can help me out is by suggesting a guest. The guests that I'm looking for are the old and the bold. The old are those who are 65 plus and can look back at their life and say, I have something to teach others about living well based on what I've learned over my years. The other category, the bold, consists of people like me, like you, maybe a few years younger, maybe up to the age of 35, who are actively trying to live the best life they can and have something to show for it. I'm not picky about who I interview, as long as they fit into those categories. It could be you, it could be your grandma, it could be your best friend who does uh, roller skating professionally, or makes really, really cool YouTube videos. I don't know who I'm going to interview, and I'm excited to find out. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you for putting up with me gabbering on for so long. And I hope you have a great day.